Hey, this is Dave Fryer. Welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. This is take two of the beginning of a big conversation about design. So Will Evans and Scott Sellers are here. Guys, thank you for taking time out of your day. Thrilled to do it. Yeah, thank you. And I'm hoping you're all sheltering in place and everyone's healthy around you, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we're, we're great here. Cool. All right. So I'm going to let you guys explain how we're going to discuss this topic and, and what the general premise is, because it is... Um, it's all about design and it's all about the level to which we want to understand things, but how would you characterize this conversation? Okay. So when we are solving problems around helping figure out what products to build or what the products you build need to actually be, we have to come at it from a lot of different points of view. And one of the things you have to solve is understanding your users and understanding what's important to them. That is one of the things you have to address. Now, how you get there can, can vary. You know, I, I get there, I come at it from an engineering point of view just because that's my DNA. That's my wiring, it's my background, it's my history. And, and Will comes at it from a design point of view. And both perspectives are not only valid, but critical. And it's, it's important that you have both perspectives. So, how we get to an answer, we, we get there from, from very different points of view. Uh, Dennis made a comment once uh, that when you, when you arrive at the same conclusion from, uh, from completely different perspectives, what's likely is that you have uncovered what he would call a truth with a capital T. Okay. So you're both coming at this from very different perspectives. And, and the idea is, I mean, hopefully, when you're working together on this, you're, the two different perspectives balance each other out, and you're able to reach a conclusion about what is the best way to approach or the level of depth we need to go to to figure out how to understand who the customer is or who the user is. Right. And I think one of these things ends up being kind of an underlying assumption um, based on an assertion, um, which is we believe um, that attacking product from a user-centered or a human-centered perspective can lead to the design of better products that are more successful in the marketplace. Now, how we get to that is really an, a, a topic for, for quite a bit of conversation, um, but it comes back to what is the nature of what do we know about our customers? That is, what is their current context? What is their current situation? What are, what are the things that are influencing their decisions about how they're solving problems when they come upon them? And how might we, through observation and understanding, empathize with where they are coming from such that we at least can think about what are potential ways that we might solve those problems for them? And underlying that is a desire for us to find where is the value. I mean, at the end of the day, we try to get some of these teams to anchor around where is the value? How do we find the value? How do we validate that the value is real? And, and to get there, we need to actually observe and understand our customers in their context. So is, is the difference in the approaches that you take more about how you collect the information or what you do once you have the information? I would say both. Scott? Uh, yes, I yeah, I agree both. Uh, like, I, I think the only differences between Will and I, frankly, are how we got to a shared understanding. Okay, but, uh, but you know, maybe we frame the problem a little bit differently. Like one of one of the conversations that I could imagine, 
I could imagine having when, when we work with clients, a lot of times they talk about, here's the value of doing this thing. And they give us a subjective description. That is, it isn't really an articulation of the value. It's, it's describing the direction in which value is realized for any given thing. Can you give an example of that? Like a simple uh, example? Yeah. So we're building this because we want to improve sales. So okay. now go build it. Well, okay. Well, I have no idea what I need to build because I don't know if I'm trying to improve sales by 2% or 2,000%, right? The level of ambition of the potential value I'm trying to realize determines how much work I need to do, right? So, but the people who are asking for help don't know how to ask yet. So they just say improve sales and that's, that should be a sufficient charter, right? So in, the, in that world of getting directional and then having a dialogue that says, okay, let me go understand some things. We all know that understanding our users is important to building the right product. Well, you know, to Will's point, that is our hypothesis. That mm -hmm. incorporating an understanding of the user will lead to better products. Okay. And so against that frame, I would use the same, I would have the same conversation that I would have with a customer to say, okay, in this situation, how well do I need to understand the customer in order to build a better product? And what, where, where Will and I both land on the same page is that in different situations, we need to understand our users and our customers to different degrees relative to all the other things that we also need to understand. Yeah. So back to, um, there was a thing, a question that you had brought up that we talked about very briefly, which is, you know, um, this observation and ethnography for developing empathy for understanding on the one hand and the market research, big data on the other hand. And the way that we start to poke at this was we say, okay, well, market research and even big data use um, is useful starting point for understanding the market, the competitive landscape, the climate, the different ways in which c customers' needs are or not being met to the level that they want. Um, but it doesn't give us the underlying why, um, nor does it create um, this space where we can explore a number of different ways to look at both the problem and potential solutions and that's what we need, the more empathetic side of the more, the more ethnographic side of the more observation-based information to, to really poke at where are the holes, what are the jobs to be done, um, so that we can start um, tying those jobs to be done to how much do we believe this might actually influence, for instance, um, an increase in sales or a decrease in costs and delivery or a different mechanism by which um, the customer receives or consumes um, our product. So when we talk about, I mean, you're, it sounds to me, and, and Scott, I think you're the one I want to check in with on that, with this on. You're both in favor of empathy, right? Getting to a level where we have empathy for the customer or the user. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Always, okay. always in favor of it. What, what, what varies is how much that is the most important thing to learn now to reduce the uncertainty about what work we're about to do. Well, okay, so I want to back up and ask another question before we go into that. Um, the way that you guys kind of set it up, I'm thinking that on the one side, on the engineering side, I want a lot of data. I want to know who comes into the supermarket at what time, all the items that go into their cart, in what order, how much they have in their purse, what kind of, like any data I can collect is going to help me understand or frame up what I'm thinking about. And on the other side, 
I want to be spending more time kind of thinking through this person's experience, maybe, maybe watching them. It's a little more kind of playing through it in my head as opposed to looking at hard numbers. Is that a bad way to characterize it or is that? I think it's a, a little bit of a dangerous way to characterize it. So okay. if, 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 if I live in my analytical brain and I say, hey, more data is better. Well, more data is dangerous because it can, be, it can drive insights just as easily as it drives distractions and leads yes. you astray. Okay. So it's more like the right data. You have the right data available that has been... Um, gathered in the right ways because we know that data is an objective, right? Yeah. Now, that, that, that might be a little bit uh, challenging for some people, but the way in which we gather data uh, predispositions us towards the data that we're going to get, yeah. which might not be the right data that should inform the kinds of trade-off decisions we're going to be making in a product team. In the same way that the way you ask the question creates bias just by the fact that you're asking the question. Right. Okay. And the other thing that we're, we're thinking about um, is that oftentimes in the organizations we're working with, um, senior leaders immediately or the organization immediately jumps to solutioning without actually challenging what problems are we solving to deliver on what outcomes. And so what we need to do is find mechanisms to deal with that inherent bias towards the highest paid person in the room. And, and, the um, gathering of insights from market data um, is valuable for that, but also developing empathy through direct observation and ethnography is super important as well. Because one of the challenges that, that we face day in and day out um, is, is, is the inherent bias that a lot of us come to any problem or, or situation with. Like there's this great line from Anais Nin, who, who was this amazing writer in the last century. She said, we don't see things as they are. We see them as we are. Right. So one of these things is bringing together data from multiple different sources, as well as people with different cognitive styles to look at things from different perspectives so we can have a better understanding of what are the real challenges and opportunities in playing in the space. Okay. And the advantage of the fact that you guys come at this stuff, I mean, for, for leading agile customers, you come at it from different backgrounds. You're able to play devil's advocate with each other. And, and hopefully the fact that you have these different angles of looking at things, that helps us find the cross-section that is the part, the truth that Dennis was talking about, the thing that we really need to focus on. Or at I, least, I, yeah. yeah. I, th I think that's definitely true. I think one of the other things that happens is when you jump back, right, we, we are in a transformation business. We are helping right. companies change how they do this stuff. Right. And so I can come in and, and well, either of us can come in, but I, like what, what I will do is I will come in and I will ask a question that is always appreciated, but often not appreciated when I'm asking it. And that question is, is the success of this product dependent on us actually solving the problems that our users face? So why would that question not be appreciated because, at the moment that it's asked? Yeah. So, uh, so Will alluded to it with the, with the HIPAA. You know, so there's, there's two different pathologies I've run into. So one of them is, this is my opinion. You go do what I said. You work for me. Right? I'm, I'm Steve That's Jobs. It. I know. Right. So there's, there is this sort of personal level of threat. Right. That's, that's one pathology. And you know, we could go down that chain sometimes if we want to develop empathy for those decision makers. 
The other path, and I've, I think over the years I developed compensating controls to get away from it, is the one that comes from like the engineering-driven organizations where the solutioning, the, the value of the thing that I'm asking for is self-evident. Mm-hmm. In my brain, I see all of that connective tissue of this thing can be used to solve that problem. And if we solve that problem, it's valuable and for whom? Where one person with one point of view has already done all that math. And in order to have a more efficient conversation, they just request that you build the thing that they've already decided needs to be built. But that person has blind spots and they are wrong to some degree or another. There's always a bunch of uncertainty. And so, right, both of those mindsets when I ask the question, that's an uncomfortable question, but for different reasons. Okay. And I, I want to just clarify this because I've noticed that when people say hippo, they hardly ever tell people what it means. And if folks don't know what that stands for, it's high pay, highest paid person's opinion. Yes. Yes. Um, okay. So you're trying to cut through their biases. So this is in a sense about helping them come to terms with figuring out whether all their own assumptions are actually right or not. You're validating that stuff and holding up the mirror and showing them, you know what, you might think you know, but you don't have any evidence to prove that. That's right, right. And so there is uncertainty about the, you know, not only the choices of which which customers should we solve for, but for any given customer, what is the problem we need to solve for them in the context of our market position and what we're trying to do? Like, so there's, there are always these broader frames. But what are the problems that it's important to solve for them? Okay. And what does it mean from their point of view to declare the problem solved? That's that outside in orientation is a big shift for our clients. Yeah, so yeah, thinking that way. Yeah. So right. many teams have an assertion of this is what needs to be done, right? For whatever reason. And internally the organizations develop a lot of more momentum. And to some degree, the more hierarchical they are, the more momentum they have of saying, this is the body of work, and it is my job to deliver this work. Okay. So the value that they're going to get as an organization out of this is is making sure that the direction they're heading is the right direction. They're either going to validate it or prove that it's wrong. They get more clarity, more certainty, they reduce risk, they have a more solid offering at the end. Right. Well, it, and, and let's poke a little bit because I love how Scott always comes at it from a slightly different angle and he, he introduces a, a very loaded, almost pungent word like uncertainty. And I, I, I think there are two different variations of what kind of uncertainty we're talking about when it comes to product. So we're dealing specifically with what I would call epistemic uncertainty. That is more information would reduce our uncertainty through learning, right? Either through market research or uh, observation formulating hypotheses, running experiments. There's that uncertainty, which we can help an organization deal with. The other form of uncertainty is just aleatory, what is called aleatory uncertainty, which is this this is just the inherent randomness um, inside of complex systems. We can't deal with that. We can help them understand it and buffer them against that. But what we can, what the, the leading agile governance model and coaches like Scott and I can help them with is the epistemic uncertainty related to lack of information and how much information is valuable to consume enough uncertainty that we can make place a small bet, realize some kind of a feedback mechanism and learn whether or not we are directionally correct based on which value lever we're trying to pull to realize some business outcome. Okay. 
and, and what events or or just check my my thinking here no I, I think it's super solid but you know if i'm bringing garlic into our uh dinner you're bringing the onions right you are just as pungent with your with your out <laughs> of uh uncertainty Wait, my trading places thing didn't work but garlic and onions do yes <laughs> damn so um here's here's the point i would make well i i believe that we can help address both forms of uncertainty with the practices that we do. Uh, and, and I say that because I, I'm making a distinction between uncertainty and risk. Uh-huh. And, the, and the distinction I'm making is that risk is an econometric problem where there is math and you know the math. And so you can optimize for present value or utility maximization or whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. Uncertainty is where you don't know the math, right? Either to your point, because you don't know it yet or because it doesn't exist. In either case, using good heuristics and rule of thumb is the best way to improve the likelihood of your predictions coming true. Yeah, I could get on board with that. And some of the other mechanisms we use to address that, for instance, when we talk about improving the predictability of teams and then reducing batch sizes uh, while while um, applying this experimental mindset is all meant to at least alleviate or consume some of that uncertainty. Absolutely, right. And, and our system drives a couple things, right? So one of them, is, as we move to smaller and smaller batch sizes, is in increasing and accelerating and creating the opportunities for feedback so that you can course correct as you go in this world of uncertainty. And to your point about uh, sensing velocity variance and that kind of stuff, there, there's two drivers of uncertainty. There are the, in, well, more than two probably. There are all of these internal notions of uncertainty, like can we actually execute the way that we expected to be able to execute? Right, like implementation uncertainty and organizational behavior. Did we properly understand our dependencies? Are we good at estimating because we provided enough clarity to have the estimates be credible? Are we delivering predictably? Is our system trustworthy? That is a giant pile of complexity and uncertainty, and we do stuff to address it. This other side is the externalities of uncertainty, of the the customers are fickle, we don't understand them, and they change their minds. And they change their minds for a whole host of reasons. Mm -hmm. Evolution of technology in adjacent spaces, uh, different changes in how our competitors put things in market that change the way they think about things, right? The Apple was, Steve Jobs was famous for getting people to change how they defined what good enough looked like. Right. Right. All of these ex- and, and then the context and the situations in which our our users and our customers find themselves are are varied and evolving. And so we are trying to shoot an arrow at a moving target from a ship on a wave. <laughs> and I, I want to ask a question about that part of it, though, because. When you brought up the risk and uncertainty thing, that what struck a chord with me is that like right now I can say, um, you know, 80% of the people that, that come in contact with somebody who's got COVID-19, they're not going to show symptoms. I can come up with all kinds of percentages of what my risk is if I go outside. And that's okay. I can do math. I can make a theoretically informed decision. You know, I'm exposing, I have this much exposure. I can make that business decision. But with uncertainty, 
I have no idea. Like I have no idea when things are going to be back to normal. And when people have that uncertainty, they kind of freak out and panic and just like fire all the guns at once because we got to do something. Yeah. Yeah. And at, at the risk of, of monologuing too much in our, in our dialogue, <laughs> uh, there's, there's a, a fantastic quote that I latched onto uh, from a guy named Jeff Yas. He's the founder of the Susquehanna International Group. And he said, his, this, this is the quote, the biggest risk is that you have a losing strategy when you think you have a winning one. Yeah. Right. And so it isn't that, and, and that's why uncertainty versus risk matters because you get a sense, a false sense of comfort from doing the math when it yeah. was inappropriate to do math. So you, I love the fact that you keep going to the opposite side of the thing I was going to. So yeah, the math is deceiving, but the panic is also really bad too. Well, that's natural, but that's one of the, the things we have to understand. And this is where like observational techniques and some of the things that we teach when we're exploring the problem space and when we're building various artifacts, whether they're empathy maps or personas or behavioral impact maps, is understanding the impact that that uncertainty has on decision makers is super important because that fear of the unknown unknowns is what actually releases that cortisol into your system, that fight or flight reflex, which is why oftentimes executives, they may not say it, but they would prefer to be, to be uh, confident and wrong than uncertain and right. <laughs> Do you think that they, that they think that they can just brute force their way into success sometimes as well? Or maybe that's part of confident and wrong. Like, I'm just going to will this to happen and I, I will be right. I, I don't know. I don't know if I've seen that. Okay. This brute forcing through, it's kind of more like we've made a commitment. We need to, to meet our commitments and therefore we will, um, we will do every, we will take every action to realize this, this, this outcome, even if all of our effort is wasted. Yeah. Okay. We're doing something. Okay. So to just to, to try to, sorry for taking us off the rails, but to go back towards the original topic with no, I think that I, I don't think we're off the rails at all. I think this oh, okay. is exactly the frame of the original topic, right? We're, we are managing the risk and yeah. the uncertainty of making investments to do something. Okay. And one of the things we need to do, we all agree directionally that we need to understand our users in order to make good choices about what to do. So it's almost like insurance. God, I'm going to put a little cricket sound in there. <laughs> Let me explain what I mean by that. In that um, they're placing bets, right? And rather than have it just be like, I think my the little voice in my stomach and my gut is telling me it's this and I always am right. Or, you know, I, I think it's probably this. The work that you guys do is a way of testing and making sure that at least we've got something to indicate that this is the right direction to go. Got it. Insurance in blackjack, not insurance in State Farm. Yes, yes. Got it. Sure, I would buy that, right? Because additional, additional <laughs> totally understanding. That part out. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's fair. All right. Additional understanding of the customer comes at the cost of additional understanding of something else or uh, time to market. What would it come at the cost of, you said something else, like what, I mean, time to market I get, but what, the cost of something else, like what? So uh, when we, at all the teams we operate with, 
uh, that we work with are operating in conditions of constrained resources. And okay. so the, the person who would be investing to put time into better understanding the user that is coming at the cost of putting time into better understanding something else, okay. where that something else could be awareness it. of the system, clarity of the requirements. So there's lots of stuff. In the same way that we can build this product or that product. We have limited people that can do a certain amount of work. They can only produce so many things. You can only learn so much at one time. We're going to choose to study this as opposed to the other thing. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like we, we actually, uh, you maintain a backlog of risks, right? So we acknowledge the uncertainty in our plan. Mm -hmm. And then we prioritize the relative importance of de-risking the plan over time. Okay. To the same way that we prioritize building the things. Okay. Now, how do you guys decide how deep, down the rabbit hole to go when you're trying to figure out who the user is, what they're actually dealing with, what they actually need to be successful. So I, I, I start with that question of, do we need to understand them in order to succeed? That's, that's how I started. I don't, I don't know, Will, what your starting point into that frame is. No, that sounds reasonable. So, and you've got to teach them how to answer this question or how to think about the question to be able to answer because they're, I mean, I would imagine they're just going to say, we want everything to be successful. Why wouldn't we want it to be successful? Right. Or am I too far off the rails? No, no, you're right. I think I bumped because this conversation happens at different levels of detail mm -hmm. and based on like different kinds of problems, which answer certain types of questions. And so it depends on when are we talking about this? What do we need to learn? What risks are we currently managing? And what uncertainty do we have to consume such that we are able to make better economic trade-off decisions? And so we look at it at different levels of resolution depending on what the problem at hand actually is. Initially, when we're thinking about, you know, people will start with, um, we're gonna build X, how long will it take and how many resources? And so our first question is really, getting them to revisit that and say, what problems are we solving which will allow us to capture what market by closing some gap in the competitive landscape? Let's have a conversation about that. Once we have that conversation, what would we need to learn to, make a, to have a better understanding of what problems are actually worth solving for which customers? And how much do we think solving that problem might be worth? Once we, we have that conversation, then depending on what we're planning to do in terms of formulating our backlog, we might ask more specific questions so that we can better understand, like for instance, um, what does your specific customers currently believe to be true and you need them to believe something different? So. You know, I, I, I think both Scott and I um, spend a lot of time in, in the healthcare and, and um, wellness space. Um, you know, some of the challenges that somebody who's just been diagnosed with something is that they may not currently believe that if they don't make certain changes to their behaviors, there will be certain types of outcomes that are inevitable and probably pretty horrible. So we need to, them to believe that they can manage their health. We need them to believe that things are actually worse than they're willing to admit. Um, we need executives to believe that certain problems aren't worth solving, but other problems are worth solving. And so a lot of it is really around shifting that mindset through asking of the right types of questions to solve certain classes of problems. And 
So we, we, we won't even get into the detail of like, or going down the rabbit hole of whether or not you should do full blown, you know, six weeks of ethnography to build personas until we understand what are the problems we believe we are trying to solve that will move certain levers, changing certain outcomes that drive certain, um, uh, drive towards certain goals for the organization until we understand what that is like. Then we can start asking these specific questions about whether or not and to what degree we need better understanding of the problem, better understanding of the market, better understanding of the customers um, and their context and situation, as well as how all other people potentially solve that problem for those customers and why looking at um, those problems from multiple angles might give us more insight into what bets would we be willing to place at what time to learn certain things to get better at being able to build products that people actually want. So one of the things that Will did, and this is, this is why I sort of go back to the context in which we're solving again, was he, he told a very compelling story of the journey of someone who's managing a chronic disease that they start when they acquire the disease and they are in a different place and they have different problems that need to be solved at that point in time than they do later. Right. Okay. So helping somebody appreciate what they need to do is a different problem to solve than helping them do it effectively. So okay. by developing empathy for the users at that level of detail, we understand how to frame the pursuit of figuring out what we need to do by helping figure out the right problems to solve for them. If I popped up a level, because we'll talked about like three of the 17 levels, if I pop up a level, then the question becomes thinking about the potential for success of our business. It might be that competitively, what we need to do is help people in that starting stage of their journey of managing a disease to get to the point where they are managing the disease. That might be what's the most important thing for us to do competitively. Okay. Or that part might be a problem that's effectively sufficiently solved broadly and where we differentiate is in coming up with better ways to help solve their problems in the management phase from the point of view of the user. Okay. So you're picking which battle to fight. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like that competitive positioning is there. And if, and I think Will alluded to like the next level above that, which is coming in and saying, what is the position in the market we're trying to play with or, or establish? Are we trying to compete based on providing differentially more valuable value to our customers than our competitors? Or are we trying to compete based on price, right? We, we are, we are providing an equivalent solution, but a much lower cost to the customer, which requires us to then solve all of the uncertainty problems around how we, how we make a business model viable. And when, when that's the emphasis we need to have, that problem might require a greater proportion of our attention than understanding the customer to a greater degree. Right. And the third option, although it might get looped into your other two, you know, there's the differentiation part through offering either more or different value for a given problem um, versus driving down what's called the experience curve and economies of scale and reducing costs and competing on price, which is a different thing. And then the third I, 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 is creating a completely new market of solving a problem that people didn't even realize they had, right? 
Um, and those are different kinds of questions that you would need to understand and ask using different techniques than the previous two. Okay. And if you really want to mess it up, Dave, there we go. Not, not only is all of that true, <laughs> yes. but we, we listed the customer as a singular, as if right. they're all homogenous and the same. And there right. are actually groups of customers who you might be able to simplify your thinking about how you better understand your customers by developing market segments and persona and empathy uh, to, to try and lump people together into groups of people whose behavior you would expect to be similar. Okay. Right. Notice how Scott anchors on behavior that you would expect to be similar. So therefore we might believe that certain types of either interventions or features um, might be more effective for certain segments based on behavior than other segments. But that's a very different lens than saying, segmenting based on, say, psychographic information sure. or preferences for wearing only black and going to punk rock shows. So sometimes we're trying to figure out how to solve a specific problem, and that would require one level of detail and engagement. And other times we're trying to figure out what are the problems, which are the right problems to solve, and who are the best people to solve those problems for. Right. Right. As well as what assumptions are they making when they're currently optimizing whatever decisions these customers are faced with? Okay. Because we need to understand that people are, are, are usually optimizing for something when they make certain selections, either a purchase decision or a time allocation decision, whatever it is, they're operating within certain constraints. It would be helpful for the product folks to understand what constraints people are operating under and what are the inputs that are feeding their decision-making process, assuming they even have one. Okay. And I'm assuming this is an ongoing thing. It's not like you just lock this up in the beginning and then you're done. We, we are always learning. The question is, do we want to take advantage of the things we learn to change what we planned to do? So yes, it's, it's an ongoing thing always. Okay. And, and all of these questions have to be answered. You know, if, right. if we say we have to pick the right market to play in and, and carve out the right position in that market, you have to pick the right customers from the universe of all customers in that market. You have to pick the right problems of theirs to solve. You have to set the right targets for what it means from their point of view to solve the problem, not your point of view, their point of view. And then when you design your solution, you could... You, you need to have the right design, one that is suitable and effective for them to solve their problems. And then you need good execution. You have to solve all of those problems. You have to ask all of those questions. You always have uncertainty about every one of those questions. And then contextually, the, the broader perspective is to say, where are we most at risk of having the wrong decisions? And that's where we put our emphasis in better improve, in, in better understanding. Okay. And when you said them, you didn't just mean the end user. You meant, I'm, I'm assuming, the end user, company strategy, like all the different levels of the organization we work in as well, because they're stakeholders in this thing that we're building too. Yes. Okay. So you guys would walk into, you know, you, you get with our customers. This is a, a, a conversation that begins and it's just going to be an ongoing thing. 
Yes, yes, it, it is, right? So when, when we walk into a new customer, uh, in some ways we're, we're sort of solving the inverse problem where we have a conversation about their existing strategy, their existing organization design, uh, their current roadmap, all of the things are in flight, and we start the process of understanding what they're trying to do by looking at what they're already doing. Okay. And then trying to ladder up and build the scaffolding that connects their current commitment, the things that they've already committed to doing, usually through their annual operating plan uh, uh, planning program or, 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 or developing their yearly strategy and then figuring out what their AOP looks like for their investments across all their various initiatives, looking at those, looking at the metrics that they've at least established for how they're going to measure themselves, looking at their existing product roadmap and saying, how many of these things do we really believe are solving problems that are going to generate new behaviors leading to new outcomes? And how many are just ideas that people threw into the backlog? And so we look at it, as Scott said, reversed first just so that we can remove a lot of the commitments that they currently are on the hook for that for which there is probably no value there. So okay. we free up a lot of their capacity by cleaning up that backlog and making sure that the things that actually moving forward, we are committed to doing, there's a reason why we're doing them. Either we're, again, we're investing to earn or we're investing to learn. It's one of the two. Okay. We'll get back to the risk conversation, which is what are the riskiest things that we're looking at now? What things could we do that might, that might mitigate some of that risk while learning along the way? Okay. So, so I want to ask one, I think, fine. I'm, I, I'm trying to be mindful of time, so I'm going to try to limit myself to one more question. Um, what you just described is this approach is going to help us figure out here's the problems we were going to spend time solving. Here's the problems that they're just not worth the squeeze for us. We're just going to let these problems be. We, we observe them. We know they're there, whatever. They're not the thing. The stuff that we are going to focus on, how do we decide, or is there a, a way that this helps us decide which problems are more important to us than others? Or is that like a totally separate thing? It's, it's another heuristic. It's not a separate thing. Okay. But what we, what we do, when, when we start an engagement, we are doing a, a, a phase we call design the end state, although that doesn't matter, and, and piloting. And what we are doing is we are bringing together the people in the organization we work with who already have the expertise, and we're helping facilitate bringing to a point the things that they know that are appropriate to answer each of these questions. Okay. And we, and we also bring some heuristic analysis based on our years of experience across different industries. And the combination of those two different things helps get us started on a path that's valuable for the organization. Okay, cool. So what if people want to learn more about this stuff? I mean, if they want to either engage you guys or they want to just dig into it further, what's the best way to reach you? And Will, why don't you go first? Sure. Call somebody out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I think we're, there's, there's a, a first place to start. There's, there's a lot of interesting um, articles and reading that are out there. And I think putting some resources um, with this podcast would be useful for contacting me directly, obviously. I think that Twitter is the easiest way, at semanticwill, but definitely reaching out via email, will.evans at leadingagile.com. 
especially if you're interested in understanding what are some of the tools that you can bring to bear based on the kinds of challenges you're currently facing, um, to what degree you might want to engage um, some of these activities to, to better understand who are our customers, what problems do they currently have, um, what is their experience like, what is, uh, are there opportunities that exist there, what do customers currently believe, um, all of this stuff is kind of wrapped up together and there's, there's some guidance that we can at least provide um, on those things at different times, depending on, on how you're either managing risk or managing uncertainty to get to um, what is the next thing you should do. Um, but certainly understanding where we're coming from and, and a lot of the research and the underlying science behind our perspective um, the, uh, and our approach to organizational transformation, it's a good, useful first step, I think. Cool. All right. Thank you. And Scott? Uh, so the best way to reach me is to reach out to Will because he understands this stuff better than I do. <laughs> Zing. Well, I'm going to put your contact information in there anyway, Scott. Yeah. That's perfect. In case. Um, all right. Well, guys, thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I feel like I got taken to school in the last hour or so. Um, I'm, I'm grateful to you for, for taking the time. My pleasure. This remote schooling is fun. That's right. <laughs> Collaboration in the age of Corona, right? Mm-hmm.